I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. In the first message last evening, we saw six things that Peter said would befall Christians. And we saw six responses that he taught us we should have when those six things befall us. Verse 12, fiery trials are coming and they're not surprising. Verse 13, they're called sharing in Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, they're called being insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, they're called suffering as Christians. Verse 17, it's called the judgment of God beginning with the household of God. And verse 19, it's called suffering according to God's will. Those are the six things that are coming or six ways of describing what's coming. And there are six responses that he has taught us that by grace through Christ we should have. First, verse 12, we should not subjectively be surprised when those non-strange sufferings or trials come. Verse 19, remember I didn't take it in textual order the second time through, but from the most foundational up to the most ultimate. Verse 19, we are to trust and trust our souls to a faithful creator. Verse 16, we are not to be ashamed. Verse 14, we are to rejoice in these sufferings. Verse 19, we are not to grow weary in doing good. At the end of the verse, doing good while doing good. And finally, verse 16, we are to glorify God. Now, what I want to do tonight, since this is a pastor's conference, is ask the question of how you lead a people to experience suffering that way. So I'm thinking now as a pastor and wanting to help us all lead a people, pastor a people who will be like that. And the question is, how do you do it? And if you're not a pastor, small group leader, Sunday school teacher, parent, it's the same task. We want to raise children like this. And we want to have small groups like this. And we want to have teenagers in our youth groups who are like this. So even though I may say, pastor, listen up, because it relates to everyone. How did Peter do it? How did Peter go about helping? He's writing to churches all over Asia Minor, and he intends his, for his letter to be a help. And so you could say, the way I could help you is to say, go home and read 1 Peter. And that would be good advice. Or read the whole letter now and see how he spoke to the church. But the interesting thing here is that Peter didn't just speak to the church. He spoke to elders in chapter 5. And so I thought maybe the best thing I could do was go to the section where he 
address pastors directly and see what he said, and then take what he said and go back to our text, chapter 4, 12 to 19, and ask, given those instructions to pastors, what would pastors now do in order to help the people become this kind of responders to suffering? So, and now I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So, there's no doubt in our minds that as he gets to focus in on the elders, slash pastors, slash overseers, slash bishops, all the same office in the New Testament, as he bores in on pastors, he has in mind the big issue in this letter, namely suffering, okay? Because he says, that's who I am. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He draws attention to it right here as he addresses the elders, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is, in, that is among you, exercising oversight. How? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So notice what he does first. He does not call attention to his rank as an apostle here. He did in chapter 1, verse 1. He said it was the apostle. Here, he calls himself an elder. He aligns himself with the elders. He humbles himself as he identifies himself with the elders, and thus he practices what he is about to preach in verse 5, second half of the verse, clothe yourselves, all of you, not just the young, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he's practicing what he preaches in verse 1 as he says, I address you as a fellow elder. That's going to be important in knowing how we are to help our people and minister. In the middle of verse 1, he says, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And in, in those words, he takes his stand where we all live, namely between coming to Christ, followed by suffering, and the second coming, followed by glory. And we live here. We live between Christ, who came and was treated badly, called people to himself who will be treated badly, awaiting a second coming when after which nobody will be treated badly on the new earth, but only in hell. 
So he aligns himself with the elders in his humility as a fellow elder. He aligns himself with all of us as one who has tasted firsthand the sufferings of Christ, seeing them, walking in them, and waiting for their decisive end. And then he gives four instructions to the elders. So shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight how? First, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Number two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Three, not domineering over the people in your charge, but being examples. And fourth, when the chief shepherd comes or appears, you will receive the crown of glory. So not under compulsion. Let's take these one at a time and just say a word about them. Not under compulsion, not forced to, not because you have to, but willingly, because you want to. Second, not for shameful gain. That is, don't be a pastor to make money. That is not taken for granted in our day. Don't become a pastor to get rich. And you might say, that's not a problem for me. (laughs) Well, it is a problem for many. And so they should be listening. Not to make a place in the world more comfortable for yourself. It's not about that. It's about eagerness. Third, not domineering (coughs) over those in your charge. That is, don't be a control freak. Don't micromanage. Don't be aloof barking orders. (coughs) Be examples. Get down on the ground in the trenches with the soldiers. Now, my question is, what's the essence of all that? Can you What's the point of those three? We'll get to the fourth one. What is it? Here's my way of trying to say it. Isn't Peter saying to the elders, to the pastors, to you in your church, be all in. Be all in. Be all in to loving and teaching and guiding this flock. And by all in, I mean all in with your will, all in with your emotions, all in with your body. That's what I see here. So all in with your will. Verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, don't be split here. Don't look. Half of me wants to be here and half of me wishes I had another job. Don't be that way. Be all in with your will. Your will is all there. That's the kind of pastor should pastor churches. Our will is all there. We're not, it's not like we're being forced to. Got to do this. But really you want to be over there and there are constraints upon you. Family constraints or whatever. Go to bed at night. I don't like this job. Get up in the morning, I don't like this job. Don't be like that. Like it. Want the job. It says to. It's a command. 
Do it willingly. So that's mean all in with your will. Secondly, all in with your emotions, because the word eagerness in English and in Greek goes beyond willingly. As willingly, that's pretty positive. Eagerly is more positive. Don't just want your job, love your job. Love your job. Because it says to, this is God telling you to love your job, right? Be eager in your oversight. Be eager in your preaching. Be eager in your counseling. Be eager in your funerals and your marriages. Be eager. And you can do this because he said to do it. God gives grace for his commands. Don't stand there and give me this 20th century emotional stuff that you can't just command emotions like that. Well, he does. He does. Which means there must be a spiritual dynamic in the word of God that changes emotions, wills and emotions. So you're commanded to willingly be in your job and eagerly be in your job, to be all in with your will, all in with your emotions, and thirdly, all in with your body. Not domineering, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Tongue, hands, eyes, legs, being all in with your life, your bodily life. So, willingly and freely, eagerly and joyfully, by example, not control, all in with your will, your emotions, and with your bodies. That's the kind of pastor who can help people with a theology and an experience of suffering. Otherwise, I don't think it would be here in this book. And if you don't see the connections, let's work on it. Now, this fourth instruction, verse 4, when the shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He means for you as a pastor, when the hard times come that make you not want to be a pastor, which they will, family things that make it almost unbearable, church conflict that makes it almost unbearable, external persecution that makes it almost unbearable, he knows those are coming and therefore he offers you this amazing payoff. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If you look around and there doesn't seem to be a lot of payoff here, lift up your eyes. And if you've been taught by some wacko ethicist that you shouldn't live for reward, close that book and read the Bible. This is a glorious promise 
to faithful pastors in hard situations. And it's meant to be motivating. It's meant to produce perseverance. It's meant to produce eagerness. It's meant to produce willingness. It's meant to produce on the ground, in the trenches, exemplary life. That's why it's here, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree with that? When the chief shepherd comes, you who've just heard and followed my instructions about willingness and eagerness and exemplary life, you will be crowned by the king of the universe. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I will be crowned by the king of kings. You can last. Yes, you can. Oh, you can last. And if you dwell on it, Dwell on verse 4 long enough, you could fall in love with this work again. You can. You can. Life is short. Crown is big. (laughs) They, they, They can't rob you. Don't let them rob you of the joy of the ministry. Isn't that remarkable? A, a book like this, full of pain, cover to cover suffering, would say you should be a happy pastor. You should be a happy pastor. That's amazing to me. And it roots the happiness here in hope. So summarizing the four instructions to the pastors, shepherd your people willingly and freely, not with arm-twisting uh, two, shepherd them eagerly, joyfully. Shepherd them humbly and by example, getting on the ground with them. And shepherd them motivated by an indomitable hope that one day you will be crowned for your faithfulness. And I will come back in half an hour or so to why it is loving to your people to love them for your reward. Because I know ethicists don't believe that. Professional, university, ethical writers under the horrible shadow of Immanuel Kant say, if you love me for a reward to you, you're not loving me. I know they say that. It's not true or it wouldn't be in the Bible. So we'll come back, so don't think I have overlooked that problem. Let's go back to chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. How does this, I'm going to use these four words over and over again to capture what I just did, hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastors. Okay, those are my four code words. That's the summary of the first 10 minutes of this message. Hope-driven, free, willingly, Joyful, eagerly. Humble, by example, not strutting commands. My question is, how does a hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastor help people in his church respond with unshaken expectancy of fiery trials, trust in a sovereign creator, free from shame, joy in sorrow, overflowing with good deeds, glorifying God. 
Sometimes I wish I were 34 all over again. Because I'll tell you, if I were starting the ministry right now, I think that would be in my documents. <laughs> like, okay, that's what we're going to be. Those six things, that's who we're going to be. And then, you know, you'd write a big debt statement and that would define you for 30 years. And then somebody else would come along and they'd, they'd be on fire about something else. That'd be fine. But I'm not 34 and I won't do that. But maybe you will. Let's take them one at a time. The response, here's what I'm after. I'm, ask, I'm asking, how do those pastors, how does that pastor now come to this text, take those four, the six responses that we're supposed to have towards suffering and help the people be that way? This is a lifetime. This is not a sermon. This is a life, but we've got to do it in, what, 35, 40 minutes, whatever is left. Response number one when the fiery trial comes, don't be surprised. That's, that's verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So how does a hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastor help his people not be surprised? And you know the answer as well as I do. Over the years... Not once, not once, not a little series on suffering and then never mentioned it for five years, but over and over again, woven into everything you do, you showed your people from the Bible that suffering is not strange. And you quote all the people that say so. Matthew 10, 25 if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Get that expectancy high. You're going to be called the devil. Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Romans 8, 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You got to suffer to get to glory. There's no other path that leads there. It's thorny. First Thessalonians 3, 3, you yourselves know we are destined for these afflictions. It's our destiny. It is your destiny <laughs> to be afflicted, Paul says. Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. 1 Peter 2.21, you've been called to suffer because Christ did. You, you return to these texts over and over again. You weave into the fabric of the church's life suffering talk. Because somebody's always suffering. It's not artificial. It's like, oh, I guess I should do a little suffer talk today. Somebody, this is why I hate chipper worship. I hate it. Glib, chipper, entertainment-oriented worship. Somebody's always brokenhearted. The world's full of chipper. We don't need to do chipper in church. This is not in the manuscript. Sorry. We need sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sor the world can't do that. It doesn't know anything about that. It's an oxymoron to the church. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing is our life. It's our life. It should be our worship life, our counseling life, our relational life, sorrowful yet always rejoicing because the world is always suffering. 
And the only reason we don't feel it more than we do is because of our inattention and our lack of compassion. So the answer to how a pastor helps his people expect suffering is to draw their attention over and over again to how pervasive suffering is in the Bible and how it is sent to us. And then we move, so that's the first thing. Second thing we do is we move from the that it's coming to why. Why? We need to build into our people continually biblical answers to the question why we suffer. All kinds of suffering, not just persecution suffering, but cancer suffering. And it seems to me there are two kinds of Christians, the kinds that love to find biblical answers and the kind that love to revel in the fact that there are no answers. I don't, I don't get along with those people very well who, who just, re, they default to mystery immediately and ignore glorious truth, glorious biblical help for people in pain because they're so afraid of offering pat answers. Well, if you're a pat person, you're going to offer a pat answer no matter what you say. So stop being a pat person. If you're not a pat person, then probably any answer you give won't be pat because you won't feel pat. Right? Romans 8.28 is only pat in mouths of pat people. It's not a pat answer. It's a glorious answer. It's a God answer. It's got roots down to the infinite bottoms of reality and branches that reach to the top. It's never, never pat except ill-timed in the mouth of a pat person. So we, we have to care why. We have to care why the suffering is appointed and is coming. And just to give you one example, all right? So let's go to chapter 1. We've been there. Go there again. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter is aware of what I'm saying. I'm learning it from him. I'm not making this up and pushing it on him. He says in verse 6, in this, that is in this inheritance, this spectacular, undefiled inheritance, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. So I said the word necessary means that God has appointed it. It's necessary. But the question is, why? And he tells us why. So that, this is verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold. Now, if your people don't believe that, this will not make sense. So you've got a lot of teaching to do, got a lot of example giving to do, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may, so here's the effect of the fire of tribulation, the fire of suffering, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I believe this would take a while to defend, and I wouldn't die for it because my level of confidence isn't as high as it is in other things, but I'll give you my judgment. I think this means you get the praise, the glory, and the honor, not Jesus. I mean, Jesus gets praise and glory and honor, but in this text right here, and the reason I think it is because it seems to me that the flow is, here you are, not the most praiseworthy 
believer. So I'm going to put you through some fire to burn out some of the dross and bring you out as gold. And I'm going to say, good gold, good gold. Well done, gold. So this is praise and glory and honor for you. I think that's what he means. And, and if, you, if you reject that here, I could show it to you in 1 Corinthians 4. I could show it to you in Romans 2. So there are other places that make me feel I'm okay saying this, even though I might be wrong about this text, because it's a biblical truth. A little, little homiletical lesson here. If you don't know the meaning of a text and you have to preach it anyway, don't bluff. Just tell them you're not sure, and then go to a few other texts to say that the point you're making is okay, even if you're wrong here. You got that? Just that, that, as long as you're open, totally open about that, they love you for that. Pastor doesn't know what it means. Whew, that's good. We don't always have to know what it means. But he's preaching truth because here it's clear and here it's clear, even though here it may not be clear. That's okay. Homiletically, okay. That's not called eisegesis, if you're honest. <laughs> it, it, it is if you're dishonest and trying to bluff. So my point is pastors, humble, example, free, eager, Exemplary pastors continually show them in the Bible that suffering is coming of all kinds and continually point them to reasons that it's coming. Like it is considered by God to be a refining fire to burn out of your life uh, worldly reliances that cause you to rely more on Jesus, less on the world and yourself so that you come through that fire a, a more purely believing person, more childlike, more humble, more kind, more loving, and you will then be praised at the last day, which is no small incentive for enduring fire. So much more on the first one, but let's go to number two. We are called upon to respond to suffering by entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So how does a hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastor help Christians entrust their souls to a faithful creator when they suffer? The first thing he'll do as he comes to this text is direct their attention to the word therefore at the beginning of the verse, right? You with me? Verse 19 begins with, therefore, let those who suffer and trust their souls. And you know what that means. Words are, not to overstate it, infinitely important because they're gods. God chose that there be a therefore here in Greek. God doesn't waste therefores. God doesn't give false therefores. Therefore means something is being called for on the basis of something that what just went before it. 
something that went before this makes this next thing possible or advisable or true or somehow what went before is issuing in, resulting in, bringing about this other thing. And he just said, all of you entrust your soul to a faithful creator in suffering while doing good because something happened. Something, I just said something that is supposed to help you do that. And if God's talking like that, don't you blow that off. We're not, we're not playing grammatical games with our Bibles. When God appoints a therefore, there is ground and causality and reality before what he says that brings this about. And if you blow that off, what a waste you are doing. What a waste. So what went before? Here's what went before. Let's read verses 17 and 18. See if we can figure this out. For it is time, we'll come back to that four later. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, And so the way you're going to help your people do what the therefore requires. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls. If you're going to help your people with God's help, not your creative help, God's help, you figure that out. That takes you all day Friday. It will take you all day Friday. And, And many of us are just not patient enough to do it, so we just go to find an illustration of whatever. Tell a story. Don't explain. Please tell me how that therefore works because it's God's. That's your job. And if it takes you all week to figure it out, take all week. And the people will thank you. They will. They will thank you. Well, how does it work? Verses 17 and 18 say judgment is coming. God's judgment on the church is coming. It's a refining judgment, not a damning judgment on the church. It's a purifying, not a punishing judgment. Hope we all know that, but it's judgment. And the way and the only way mentioned in this text that you're going to escape it is by obeying the gospel of God. Verse 17 at the end, you see that? Obeying the gospel of God. What's that? I wonder if you even use the word obey in relation to the gospel. Gospel of God. Obeying the gospel of God. The gospel is good news, right? It's the good news of God. So to obey the good news would be to obey whatever the good news calls you to do. And it mainly calls you to believe, like entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Now, to to think that we're on the right track here, if you go back to 121, it says, God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. God raised Jesus from the dead. 
gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and your hope would be in God who raised him from the dead. So the gospel is we have a God who's committed to and powerful enough to raise his son from the dead and install him in glory. And you should obey what that gospel requires. And it requires that you hope in God, trust in God. Your faith and your hope are in God, which brings us back to 419 and trust your soul to a faithful creator. So how does it work? Judgment is coming. People will be scarcely saved. They will be saved by what? Obeying the gospel of God, that is, entrusting their soul to God, the faithful creator. Therefore, since that's the only way you can escape or endure the judgment, therefore, do it. Since the only way to pass through successfully the judgment of God is to obey the gospel of God, therefore, entrust your soul to him because that's what obedience to the gospel is. There's the connection. And it may take you a few weeks of preaching to unpack. I mean, because these categories are so foreign to your people, they don't have any conception whatsoever that judgment is happening in America right now. They don't have any sense that this text is coming through under their noses. All the more in Iran or Indonesia or China. That this is... So, preaching is not just... Um, contextualization. It is category creation. There are categories in the minds of people that don't exist that prevent them from understanding how the Bible works. And so if they don't have categories for verses 17 and 18, take two, three, four weeks and create the categories of judgment from God on Christians in America at the moment. Create that. Oh, how rich and full and deep your people will become. How stable they will become. So don't play with therefores. Spend all day on them if you have to. For the sake of helping your people suffer the way God helped them suffer. Number three. We are called upon not to be ashamed. Verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin. How does hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastor help his people not be ashamed when he's insulted for being a Christian? How do you help them not be ashamed? Well, first, you do it the way God did it with the word for. Now, for is the mirror image of therefore, right? You just flip to the other end of the sentence and for becomes therefore. For. Read it carefully. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name because 
four means because. Because judgment is beginning. And you read that, you say, I don't get that. And you spend all day Friday on that. And that's why it's two sermons. That's why it takes five years to get through First Peter. Or it's okay to do one or two sermons in First Peter and then do something else. Brothers, rightly handling the Word of God is a calling on your life. It's not a, it's not a little thing you do now and then. It's your life. Your people don't have time to do this. You can't beat them up for not doing this. This is your job to figure out that word for. What is it after that for that takes away shame? Now, don't, don't, don't go to you know, psychological textbooks. Like, I've got to help my people deal with shame. Like, God's got a way of dealing with shame. It's in the word for. Well, he's got a lot of ways of dealing with shame, and one of them is in the word for. Judgment is on the horizon, he says, flipping it around. So don't be ashamed of being a Christian. And you scratch your head at that and say, how, how does judgment coming take away my shame? That's exactly the question. And it's okay to cry out to God and say, I don't get it. He's not offended by that. He's glad you're asking. Which is why we pray like crazy when Martin Luther just, he said, I, I pounded, I pounded on Romans 1.16 not understanding the argument of the righteousness of God. And then he saw it. What's going to happen at the judgment? Judgment is coming. And at the judgment, the truth about Jesus is going to come out. Isn't it? Judgment is about separating truth and falsehood. Everything that was blurry becomes clear. Everything that was seen as false, which is true, is going to be seen as true. Everything that was seen as true, that's false, is going to be seen as false. Judgment is a great moment of pow, clarity for the universe. And all the unbelievers see, I was wrong. And all the wavering believers see, Woo, I was right. This is crystal clear to everybody in the universe. And everything you thought was shameful about you because of the, what they said will be in a moment seen to be wrong. And all those powerful people who found such creative ways to put down your Christianity will look like absolute fools. And they will be fools. And you will be vindicated with a crown on your head. And to think of that coming just over the horizon, that the present judgment is going to yield an eschatological judgment, and God is refining now, and he's going to vindicate at the end, that should make you free from all the shaming that goes on around you when you are in Christ Jesus. So, you think and you think and you think. And when you're done with that, you go back and maybe in another sermon or at the end of that sermon, you take them to chapter 2, verse 6, and you remind them that they have come to Jesus, to a living stone, rejected by men, 
shamefully thrown out. You're no good. You're no good stone. Rejected by men, but in God's sight, chosen and precious. And you say, could, I, could he view me that way? Like Jesus was thrown out as a rejected stone. He was chosen and precious. And you drop down to verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And then you remind them, that is not believed by the people you work with. They think you're an idiot. And judgment is coming. And that sentence in verse 9 will fly like a flag across the galaxies over your head. My chosen one, my precious one, my holy one, my royal one, and all the millions of people who made fun of you will be silenced forever. It takes away shame, makes you bold. Number four, joy. Verses 13 and 14, we're to respond to suffering with joy, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice, there it is, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, makarios, happy, fortunate, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So how does a hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastor help his people rejoice in their sufferings? And this is, this is the heart of the ministry, man. I do believe this is the heart of your ministry. This is what you should ask yourself virtually every day. How do I preach so as to make my people so satisfied in God that when suffering takes away everything else, they have all they need. That's the main question in the ministry. It really is. We, and I do believe you need to pose it that way in our day, just because how much easy believism there is and how much legalism there is and how much artificiality there is in the church. If you don't pose the question of your calling and their goal in terms of bringing them into f fullest possible satisfaction in Jesus so that when all other satisfactions are removed, they still have everything they need to be satisfied, you're setting your sights too low. And how does he, how does he do it? How does he call us to do it? We could focus on verse 13 here, which I'm not going to do, but I'm going to read it and say what we could do, what, what the sermon might be, but it's not going to be. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that, now there's one of those magnificent connector words that God put here, so that, here's the result, here's the outcome, here's the effect of your rejoicing in, God, in Christ's in sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And you preach how that that works. How does the that work? I should rejoice now so that I may rejoice there. You got to preach that. That's staggering. The condition of rejoicing at the second coming is rejoicing in suffering now. Here's the reason. Why would you think 
that suddenly Christ would be all satisfying to you at that point if he's not now. Why, why, would that, why would you think that? Why would anybody even entertain such a thought that at the end, he'll suddenly be my treasure? At the end, he'll suddenly be satisfying. At the end, he suddenly will be what I need. If right now he's not satisfying to me, he's not what I need now. No, there is a continuity between my present enjoyment of Christ and my final enjoyment of Christ. And of course, that's going to be 10,000 times greater because I'm just so burdened down by my personality and my circumstances now. But oh, if there's no inescapably clear seed of enjoying Christ now in suffering, there's little reason to think that you would enjoy him later. Why would you? But that's not what we're going to preach on. We're going to go to verse 14 because there's a second way of helping people. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, that's the reason you can rejoice in suffering. Because if you are insulted in the name of Christ, you're blessed. So the joy correlates with the blessing, right? Everybody rejoices when they're blessed, don't they? This is a blessing. I'm being blessed. There's a great blessing flowing over me here. That's what Jason preached on. There's a great blessing. A gift is being given to me here. And everybody's happy when they get the box with the gift that they wanted. You have to teach them why they would, would want this. And it is followed by the reason. Because... You see that now? This is a real word because you are blessed when you're insulted so that you can rejoice in suffering. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You help your people by your own example and by your own teaching to expect and to experience that when the insult comes, or worse, God shows up in an unusual way, Spirit of God as Spirit of glory. I don't think those are separate. I think those are one. Spirit of God, Spirit of glory, two ways of talking about the Spirit. He's coming to you in your shame, your objective experience of shame. Somebody has just insulted you, perhaps publicly. You feel awful. And the Holy Spirit comes as a spirit of glory rests on you. Now, I mean, I'm sure as I look, as I look out on you, some of you have tasted that profoundly. And some of you haven't. And you both have to preach on it. Some of you guys are in your 20s and, and you're in the ministry or you want to be in the ministry. When you're 60, you will know more and have more experience than when you were 20. God knows that. That's okay. You take all that you are in your 20s, give it over to God, you'll, you'll preach really helpful 20-something sermons. You will. And when you're 
50 or 70, this text you might be able to illustrate with more life. And that's where chapter 5 verse com comes in. Don't boss your people around. Go out, have that experience. But you come alongside them and tell them what it was like. You tell them what it tasted like when that happened to you and you knew God showed up. God showed up. I've often asked, God, if I'm called upon to, to suffer at the end, and I, I usually have in my mind persecution, some kind of torture, will I, will I make it? Will I, will I bail? Because it hurts so bad. I mean, I've hurt myself. I've, I've kicked my shin or something. I thought, what if that didn't go away in 10 seconds? I mean, that really, really hurt when I kicked my shin. What if that didn't go away? What if they kept hitting it? And what if they said, we're going to hit it tomorrow, we're going to hit the next day, and the next day until it's broken in two at a 90-degree angle, then we're going to start on the next one. What if that happened to me, Lord? This text is my only hope. There will show up in that cell a spirit of glory and of God and make me a blessed man. If that doesn't happen, I'm probably a goner. I mean, I, you're probably going to read a story. John Piper wimped out at the end. That would be a sad story, wouldn't it? It would for me. My, my hope is not, not a problem. I've been a faithful Christian for 70 years. I can do this. I do not feel that way. I've kicked my shin. So I'm offering, I'm going to offer this tenderly to my people. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, hate comments and stop feeling shame and get happy. It's, it's, you, you, you look at them and you know that some of them have walked in and out of these kinds of experiences and you say, this is God's word. Here's my little taste of it. And now you tell me what it's like when it happens to you and we'll build each other up. Because that is, I think, one of the most beautiful grounds for how you can be happy in suffering. Because there's a nice big because right there after the makarios blessing, which is the ground of the joy. Joy because of blessing, because the Spirit shows up and just rests on you. So you've got eschatological reasons to be happy. Got to get and you've got present reasons. I think I asked Tim what he talked about in his 10-minute talk, and he, he said that the last promise Jesus made, he kept. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Number five, we are called upon to respond by doing good deeds, and I think that means to those who do us bad deeds. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So suffering is happening. You're trusting your soul to a faithful creator and you're finding resources in that moment of suffering and trust to do good for these guys. That's 
You see why this book is amazing? So how do hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastors help their people do that? And one example would surely be teach the people continually about the nature and the importance and the possibility of good deeds. What? What does he mean by do good? Like, does that mean don't lie to your kid or what, what is what is doing good mean? So let me give you what four glimpses of what what this is about. First, these are visible by and large in Peter. Doesn't mean that some aren't invisible. Jesus pictures both, right? In Matthew 6, don't, don't do your, your righteousness in order to be seen by men. Don't your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give money. You do one of those giving online, gives a little option, be anonymous, you click it. <laughs> so yes, some good deeds hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. That's what Peter's picking up on. That's pretty visible. You stop to help somebody change a tire at minus 12 degrees on I-94, that's not invisible. You can't hide that. Like, don't watch. (laughs) I'm changing your tire. So he means visible. Now, how do we know that? Chapter 2, verse 14, the, the emperor sends governors. What are the governors for? It says, verse 14, they are sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Well, they can if they don't see them. Governors praise, maybe mayors, Praise the people of God for doing good deeds. That is implied here in 1 Peter. So that's the first thing. Lots of them, not all of them, are visible. Number two, you are to be zealous for them, not just do them. Chapter uh, 3, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? (laughs) Amazing. That's the word, zealots for good. That's a noun, not zealous for good. Zealots for good, which means really like to do them, really do a lot of them. Get up in the morning and think about doing some more of them. Go to bed at night and plan some more tomorrow. Be zealots for good deeds. Isn't that amazing? That's how important good deeds are. 215. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So one aim is I'm going to silence their bad attitude toward Christianity. Chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So clearly, one of the ways to think about good deeds in 1 Peter is, all right, they're supposed to be public. I'm supposed to be zealous for them, really love to do them, do lots of them, overflow with them. And I am to hope that they will put to silence bad talk about Christianity in my city, and I am supposed to hope that people will see them and recognize they've been hoping in all the wrong stuff and give glory to God. That's that's the way to think. That's the way Peter talks. Now, this book is totally realistic, and he cautions us, this isn't always going to happen. It's crystal clear that he, right in our text, 419, back to 419. 
We are suffering according to God's will while doing good. <laughs> the doing good didn't stop the suffering. They didn't say, whoa, oh, he's doing some good, let's stop. While suffering, you're doing good. So it didn't stop them, didn't change their mind. Same thing in chapter 2, verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that's a gracious thing, exactly the opposite of making people glorify God. It doesn't make people glorify God, it makes them be you. So don't, don't blow Peter off as naive. He's totally realistic in his context and ours. Aim at silencing criticism of Christianity that we're a bunch of people who just retreat into our little enclaves and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Try to make that not work. I'll tell you one of the things in the last 30 years that I've seen is the crisis pregnancy centers. There's about 2,000 of them in America today. There weren't any probably 35 years ago, maybe a few here and there. You know what? They're all staffed by Christians. 99% of them are staffed by Christians. The, the, the mouth of the pro-choice movement that was barking at me across the street 30 years ago is silent. Because what they were saying was, you don't care about women, you don't care about kids, you care about your Republican, white, middle-aged male agenda, blah, blah, blah. Never hear it anymore. Why? The evidence is just too strong. It's too strong. It's Christians who care about babies, care about babies before, care about babies during, care about babies after. It's Christians who care about dads, care about moms, care about, it's, it's Christians staffing, and they're staffing them all mainly with volunteers. That's an example, perhaps, of how you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I'm trying to read a note I wrote in the margin here last night. It was an idea I got. I can't make sense out of it. <laughs> Shoot. I remember it was good. Last thing to say about good deeds. Um, is that it's okay to do them for reward in heaven. Remember I said we'd get back to this? Um, chapter 2, verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You think that's there as a throwaway sentence? Like, you shouldn't want God to think that way about you. <laughs> well, yes, you should. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, so do it. Or chapter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And the blessing is both now in the spirit of glory of God and the crown that you will receive at the end as faithful pastors or lay people. Now, why? Here's, my, here's the question that the ethicists ask. How can that be love if you are doing good for people for your reward? And the answer is, it is love because your aim in doing them good for the reward is to draw them into the experience of the reward with you. Is that okay? Does that work? 
You're, you're not stepping on them to get to the reward. Squish. You are, you are reaching out and you're saying, I know well that my Savior calls me to care for you, to do good to you, even though you don't like me and like my faith. He calls me to that, and he's going to reward me. And that reward of being with him and enjoying him forever keeps me doing this to you. And I want more than anything on the earth for you to be there with me. That's not unloving. I will die for you. Here's, what, here's my definition of love. Love is being so enthralled by the greatest treasure in the universe that you're willing to die to include others in it. I'll say it again. Love is being so enthralled by God, by Christ, by the supreme treasure of the universe that you are willing to die to have more of him and include as many people with you in it and You want that from every religious group, like Muslims? You want them with you. You want them with you. You want terrorists with you. You want ISIS with you. You want them. You talk like that in public. You don't talk the other way, the right wing way. You don't talk that way. You're Christian. You, you live on this earth as an alien and an exile, and you don't buy in to the hype of all the fear and all the careless use of language about people of other faiths. Our message is, I want you, I want you, I want you as my brother and my sister in Jesus Christ. I will lay down my life to draw you in to my enjoyment of the reward I get in loving you. That's not, that's not a lack of love. So I don't buy, I don't buy Immanuel Kant, I don't buy all those ethicists who I read in the 1970s, especially when I was working on Jesus' love command that said, if you do something for a reward, you are ruining its moral quality. I don't buy it because I'm a Bible guy. And it makes perfect sense to me why the Bible says what it says. Jesus said in Luke 6.34, love your enemies do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. Either it's right to be motivated by reward or Jesus is a bad teacher. Because he just said, love your enemies, do good and your reward will be great. And the reason it's loving is because you want those enemies with you in the enjoyment of the reward. And you'll die for it if you have to. You don't kill for it. You die for it. Lastly, one more page. Number six. We're to glorify God when the suffering comes. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. How does a hope-driven, free, joyful, humble pastor help Christians glorify God in the midst of fiery trials? Well, you need a definition before you can answer a question like that. To glorify God means make God look glorious or beautiful or precious or valuable or desirable or 
like a supreme treasure. So feel, so think, so talk, so act as to make God look like your supreme treasure. More valuable than health, more valuable than security, more valuable than life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Live to make him look that way. Get up in the morning and think, okay, now how can I talk to my wife and how can I treat my children and how can I act in this neighborhood and how can I talk at work so that it becomes more clear that my supreme treasure is not my life, not my money, not my clothing, not my car, not my favorite sports team, not my favorite videos, not my favorite movie, not my favorite music, but God. How, how, can, I, how can I live that way? That's what you ask if you want to glorify, make God look glorious. The key to glorification, therefore, in a life of sorrow going back to chapter 1, verse 8, is that when we are grieved by various trials, we move to verse 8. And I'll end with this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, or literally glorified. Joy that is inexpressible and glorified. Even though you don't see him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice in him with inexpressible and glorified joy. Now, that's, that takes you all day Friday again. Think through, think through that. What is glorified joy now? We're going to be glorified at the last day in the twinkling of an eye, right? We suffer with him that we may be glorified with him. And now he's saying the joy you have right now in your experience of Jesus can, at least at moments, be called glorified. Well, I don't have a sermon on it, but I'll just say a word. I, Jesus said... These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. So the joy we have with Jesus dwelling in us is the joy that Jesus has in the glory of the Father. And therefore, since Jesus' joy is a glorious joy, a glorified joy, a, a joy that is fully in the Father's glory, and he's experiencing that in us, therefore, to the degree that we participate in Christ's enjoyment of the Father, we have a glorified joy. And I think that is the key to making God look glorious. Having joy, satisfaction in a glorious Father by Jesus in us, enabling us miraculously to enjoy the Father, shows to others by the way we act that the Father is our supreme hope and treasure, which is why people might show up and say, give me a reason for the hope that is in you. So, pastors, this is our aim, I think, uh, for ourselves, for our people. It's the work of a lifetime to bring about a people like this. It's humanly impossible to bring about a people like this. It's a glorious work. It's a work in the midst of suffering. You're not under compulsion. You don't have to. You can quit your job tomorrow, and you should if you 
have been trying forever to like it and you just can't, then maybe try a little longer, but then don't stay in it anymore because you're supposed to willingly, eagerly, by example, lead your people into these responses to suffering. What this means now, one more sentence, is that in the new America, as the church is increasingly meeting inhospitable responses, the stage is set for us to show God as more glorious than he's ever looked. Because that's the way you show the glory of God, by being so satisfied in him that when other satisfactions are taken away, your joy in him in the midst of those losses makes him look great. This is a golden moment for us. Let's pray. Father, as we sing and as we hear Tim take us to the world tomorrow morning and then the panel and then home, oh God, work the miracles. Work the miracles that we've been talking about. Words are cheap. Experience is precious beyond all reckoning. So come, Holy Spirit, rest upon us with your beautiful Christ-exalting glory. I ask in his name. Amen.